Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I believe my heart's been directed there for this morning. And, and as we're finding our way there, Luke chapter 24, a reminder this evening, we'll uh, spend some time in worship and uh, meditation from the Word. And as we close out this wonderful weekend from Good Friday through uh, the Sunday evening. Tonight at 6 o'clock, each of you are invited. We pick things up in verse 13 of Luke 24. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. And that same day is Resurrection Sunday, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was that while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they, they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And so they said to him the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be contemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. And yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had uh, also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, uh, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us when he talked with us on the road and while he opened the Scriptures to us? Let's pray together. Fathers, we turn now to this meditation that you have provided to us concerning the resurrection of your Son. We pray that uh, it would be on our end uh, just a continuation of our worship of you, our love of you, our wanting to draw closer to you, and our understanding of you and the things of you. And then we pray, Lord, that you would bring the witness of your Holy Spirit to your eternal word and take all of these truths off of the printed page and plant them into the daily of our lives, our hearts, our minds, our soul, and our strength. And we pray for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I think that each of Jesus' uh, 
appearances to his disciples following his resurrection are filled with great, great beauty uh, and uh, great, great instruction. Each of them warms our hearts and certainly does uh, for us as Christians. And this is very, very true, I think, as well of, as, uh, of his appearance here to these two of his disciples while they were walking from the city of Jerusalem to what was evidently their hometown, and that was the city of Emmaus. It's an appearance here that he makes to them that provides not only them with great instruction and great revelation, but it provides it uh, to us as well. We notice the physical and the emotional and uh, the spiritual condition of these disciples. Uh, number one, we know that they were disciples or followers of Jesus. Verse 13 tells us that there were two of them. Verse 13 tells us that they were engaged in the activity of walking. Again in verse 13, we're told that they were walking from the city of Jerusalem to uh, a village named Emmaus. In verse 13, we're also told that uh, this was a distance of about seven miles. It would have covered them in kind of a leisurely uh, journey. They weren't in any particular hurry. They were quite engaged in conversation. Would have probably taken somewhere between two and three hours uh, to cover it. It's the same day as Jesus' resurrection, a Sunday, we're told in verse 13. And so the Jewish feast of Passover is over. And for these disciples, it's been a very, very uh, difficult few days for them in the city of, of Jerusalem. They have witnessed the crucifixion uh, of Jesus uh, on the cross between those two thieves and uh, witnessed all of that three days earlier. They probably begin their uh, journey at about uh, two to three in the afternoon because we're told in verse 29 that they arrived in Emmaus uh, sometime before dark. This is in the spring of the year. The road to Emmaus was a part of a road that led from the city of Jerusalem to uh, the seacoast city of uh, Joppa. And so this means that they were walking west at the time uh, of the sunset. And, uh, and that setting of the sun was what was right before their eyes, and it was really the perfect encapsulation of what they were feeling uh, emotionally because of the events of the last three days. We're told very clearly in the passage that their hope, their confidence concerning Jesus as the Messiah, as the Redeemer of mankind, was setting as surely as that late afternoon sun. And their hope and their confidence in Jesus as the Messiah and the Redeemer of the world was growing dimmer by the hour. One of the disciples was named Cleopas, and the other goes unnamed. We're also told that they were not only walking, verse 14 and 15, but they were reasoning, not only in a discussion with one another as they walked, but they were reasoning as they uh, did so. And uh, we're told very significantly in verse 14 that the subject of their discussion was the events of the last few days of what had happened uh, in Jerusalem surrounding Jesus. His trials, his death upon the cross, uh, his burial, and now these scattered reports of his resurrection. Again, they're not only talking, but we're told in verse 15 that they were reasoning with one another. 
Uh, they were discussing, they were reasoning, they were inquiring together, they were discussing the events of the past few days in an attempt to figure them out in the same way that we might have done if we were walking with a friend that had these things in common. They were trying to make sense of what they had seen and what they had experienced for the last three days. And we're told in verse 17 that they were sad, visibly so. I mean, they wore it on their faces. Their bodies communicated it. It it was uh, revealed in their voices. And the reason for their sadness is given to us in verse 21. They had lost hope. And you notice that phrase that's there in verse 21. They declared, we were hoping. It can just as easily be translated as it is in other translations of the Bible. We had hoped. And here they are, they're speaking of their hope in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, and they spoke of that hope now in the past tense. It is as a hope that had once existed in them but didn't exist anymore. Their hope was as dead and as buried as uh, they thought Him to be. And here they had put such high expectations on the fact that He was the Messiah, but His suffering and His crucifixion has brought all of that to an end in their lives. And then in verse 18 reveals that the subject of uh, Jesus and all that had happened to Him had been the great discussion uh, uh, of all of the discussions that were going on uh, in Jerusalem during that Passover. And when Cleopas gave Jesus, not knowing that it was Jesus, in verse 19, he had supernaturally uh, restrained them from recognizing him. He gave him a quick review of the events of the last three days in Jerusalem. You notice his description of Jesus in verse 19. Uh, he was a prophet. He was mighty in word and deed uh, before God and then also before all of the people. And there's hope in his voice in verse 19. As you can almost hear his voice rise as he's speaking of Christ and the hope that they all once possessed. And then you can almost hear it fall just as sharply as uh, Cleopas spoke of Jesus' death in verse 20. And without any hesitation, he openly communicated to Jesus that the events of the last three days, Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death, had left their hope in him as the Messiah as being dashed in pieces. Now, uh, all that was left of their life now was to make their way home to Emmaus, and then continue to process their sadness, to continue to process their disappointment, to continue to process what was uh, uh, apparently a terrible self-deception that they had uh, 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 inflicted upon uh, themselves. And that was the emotional and spiritual condition of these two disciples when Jesus joined himself to them, verse 15, as they walked. Now, let's pretend that we don't know the rest of the story, uh, the rest of the account, and ask ourselves, what in the world could Jesus say to these two disciples in order to revive this uh, dying and dead hope, uh, their, uh, their dying and dead faith of these two disciples? What would he do? 
Uh, would he give them a group hug? Uh, maybe provide them with some kind of a positive uh, saying to repeat uh, over and over again. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Uh, or it takes, uh, come on guys, you know, you're looking so down. It, don't you know that it takes more muscle to frown than it does to smile? Just think about that. And, uh, and I think that'll lift you up out of the doldrums that you're in. Or to remind them that it's not the number of breaths we take, but the number of moments that take our breath away. And uh, something that they could a- anchor them in a, a time of a such uh, dashed hopes. I think it's uh, fascinating and instructive to notice that Jesus' response to their crisis of faith, to their dying faith, uh, was to give them a Bible study. And the single great uh, point of this Bible study that he gives them was to show them from the Old Testament Scriptures that not only did the Messiah need to die, and not only uh, did he uh, need to suffer, but that if he did not die and he did not suffer, he could not be the Messiah. That Jesus' death and suffering on the cross was not a cause for unbelief on their part but it was a cause for faith. And that's why he calls them foolish ones, and he declares them to be slow of heart. They were about to abandon their faith in Jesus as the Messiah for reasons which ought to have made them believe in him as the Messiah uh, even more. Jesus began his Bible study with the question, and, uh, and it also, this question constituted the proposition of his sermon there in verse 26. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Not only to have suffered, uh, but to enter into his glory. Uh, including not only as it speaks of his glory, not only of his resurrection, but even far beyond it. Uh, to his ascension into heaven and then uh, to being seated in that heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Now, you can hardly as a speaker or as a Bible teacher, you can hardly gain the interest of an audience better than by voicing the unspoken question that is on everybody's mind and then proceeding to answer that question. And so here you have it. He's given us his proposition. He has their full attention. uh, uh, But no sermon is complete with merely uh, posing the proposition, gaining the attention or arresting the attention uh, of the audience or the congregation. Jesus then had the burden of proving his proposition. And in order to do that, he turns to the law and the prophets. He turns to the Old Testament from Moses all the way through the prophets. And you notice in the words of verse 27 that he expounded to them in all of the Scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. The entire book testifies uh, to Jesus Christ and who and what he uh, is. And perhaps Jesus began this sermon in the first of the five books of Moses in Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord declared, I will put enmity, speaking to the devil, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall, speaking of the Messiah, bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And here you have the first time in the Bible, now following the fall of Adam and Eve in that garden, that absolute catastrophe in human history. Here is God the Father's promise to send a Messiah, to send a Savior into the world who would be born of the seed of a woman, a virgin birth, that Satan would indeed bruise his heel. Comparatively speaking, as Jesus did suffer and did die upon the cross, but that this Messiah would ultimately, in doing so, crush Satan's power. And then perhaps Jesus went to one of the great messianic psalms of King uh, David describing Messiah's suffering, Psalm uh, 22. And they gape at me with their mouths, the Messiah says from the cross, uh, prophetically, as a raging and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my uh, tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And why has the suffering he, he poses to them of Jesus of Messiah surprised you since God declared it a thousand years uh, earlier through uh, David and the scriptures ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then perhaps Jesus went to David uh, again in Psalm 16 and uh, where David declared to God and the inspired by the Holy Spirit he said to God the Father for you will not leave my soul in Sheol and then he transitions to speak of the Messiah to come nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption and a thousand years before Jesus' birth, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, God had declared through David that Messiah would see death, but not corruption. He would die, but he would not remain in that condition long enough for his body uh, to see uh, uh, corruption, speaking of his resurrection, speaking of his glory. And then perhaps Jesus went to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, describing the suffering of Messiah. Just as many were astonished at you, so his, that is the Messiah, his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Why has the suffering uh, of the Messiah, why has the suffering of Jesus surprised you since God declared it would happen 740 years before it did happen prophetically uh, through Isaiah? 
Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? And then perhaps to Isaiah, again, in Isaiah chapter 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And then perhaps to Isaiah again in that same chapter, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was placed upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And how is it that that wounding, his terribly bruised body, his stripes, he says to these two, and to us today, how is it that these things have become a cause for doubt in you when God declared through Isaiah uh, that it would be exactly as has occurred? Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? And then perhaps to Isaiah again, He was taken from the prison and from judgment. And who has declared his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In other words, has his death surprised you? But how could it be any other way? You're stumbled by his death, but Isaiah declared that he could not be Messiah apart from it. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? And then not through Isaiah uh, alone uh, didn't God declare the same thing uh, through Daniel the prophet. Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. And know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two sevens, Messiah shall be cut off. He's going to die, but not for himself. And Daniel declared that the Messiah would be cut off, that he would die when he came. And on and on and on, Jesus could have continued. And I have no doubt that he, that he did. Speaking of Abraham's willingness to offer his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, take thy son, God said to him, thine only son, whom thou lovest, And then God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son and instead gave him a ram to sacrifice in his stead. And all of this happening at the highest point of Mount Moriah and the highest point of Mount Moriah being Calvary, the very place where God the Father offered his son, his only son, whom he loveth, as the God-provided sacrifice necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. We think of the Lord's institution of the Feast of Passover among the Jews at the time of Moses, where an innocent lamb needed to be sacrificed in order uh, to uh, deliver them, the children of Israel, from God's judgment that was going to come uh, upon uh, Egypt. 
and, and for deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. And all of it was a picture of how Jesus would die on the cross as the Lamb of God to deliver us from the judgment and the wrath of God that our sin uh, so richly deserved, and then to deliver us not from the bondage of a country, but the bondage of, of sin itself. And the lamb was to be without a spot or without blemish in order to be an acceptable sacrifice, even as Jesus is um, the lamb of God, blameless and without sin. And the blood of that lamb was to be applied to the doorposts and, and the uh, lentil, uh, lentils of the house, the doorpost up above the lentils on either side uh, of the house in the shape of a, a, of the, a cross. No blood was to be applied to the threshold. No blood was to be applied to uh, the doorstep because the blood was not to be trodden underfoot of sinful man. And this is what a person does when a person rejects Christ and the salvation that is found in his death for the forgiveness of our sins. And the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote in chapter 10, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Every Old Testament sacrifice or offering spoke of Him. Uh, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, uh, the peace offering, every inch of the Jewish tabernacle spoke of Him. Perhaps Jesus made mention of the four curtains that covered the substructure of the ancient tabernacle of the Jews, the tent of meeting. The inner layer that was seen from the inside was made of linen. It was beautifully embroidered with gold and purple and blue and scarlet. There were figures of cherubim around the God's throne that were looking down upon the worship as they were embroidered into the linen. And this was the only one of the four coverings that was visible from within the tabernacle. And over the embroidered linen was placed a curtain of goat's hair, speaking of Jesus as our scapegoat. And then over that was placed a curtain or, of, of uh, covering of ram skins, dyed bright red, symbolizing His precious blood. And then over all three of them was an outer covering made up of uh, badger skins, water repellent, but absolutely gray, absolutely uh, drab so that from the outside, the viewer could only see the drab gray badger skins. From the outside, it looked completely unattractive. There wasn't, uh, from the outside, even the slightest hint of the beauty that was inside. And only by entering into the tabernacle could the beauty be discovered and be appreciated. And so it is with the sinner and with Jesus. Only by being born again, only by becoming in Christ does the beauty of His life and life with Him become apparent. As the Apostle Paul put it, 
But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Every furnishing of the tabernacle spoke of Christ. His humanity, His deity, His holiness, His mercy, His presence, His desire for fellowship with man. The Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the golden uh, lampstand, and then on to the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year for the Jews, where two goats were brought before the people and brought to the priests, and the first goat was sacrificed for the sins of the people. But that in of itself was not enough to properly represent the Lamb of God who would one day come into the world to take away the sin of the world. And thus God involved a second goat on the Day of Atonement, a live goat, where the priests would then lay his hands upon the head of that goat, and he would confess the sins of the entire nation over that goat, and then the goat would be led out into the wilderness to be released, to separate itself far from uh, the, uh, the people, because it took both goats to symbolize the work of Jesus on the cross. First in his dying for our sins, and then the second, reminding us that because of our faith in His sacrifice, our sin has been separated from us. And it has been separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And then there was the offering for the leper in the day of his cleansing, uh, the bronze serpent of Moses' time, then the giving of the Ten Commandments, the first four having to do with man's relationship with God, the vertical relationship, the final six of the ten having to do with man's relationship with his fellow man, the horizontal relationships in life. And you put the horizontal and the vertical together and they speak of a cross. And it's not incidental by any means. Jesus, when he was approached by a man, and he said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two commandments hang... It's an interesting word for him to use. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That the cross that Jesus would hang on, he did so in order to provide us and put us in right relationship with God, but then that it would also then translate into a right relationship with our fellow man. And as you just masterfully, flawlessly, he drives home the same great point, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Sometimes you'll hear uh, a Christian say, Oh, I don't read the Old Testament. I only read the New Testament because I want to learn about Jesus. Jesus knows nothing about that kind of an attitude toward the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. His rebuke of them in verse 25 is an interesting one. And a rebuke is always an interesting way to begin a, a Bible study. He rebuked their unbelief. He didn't rebuke them for not believing 
the earlier reports of the women or of the angels or of their friends concerning Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He declared them to be foolish and slow of heart for their unbelief, for their we had hoped concerning Jesus as Israel's Messiah and the Redeemer of the world in the face of the witness of the Scriptures, as if his suffering and his death had disqualified him in some way. And so we close by looking at the effect that Jesus' expounding of the Scriptures had upon them in verse 32. His word left them with a renewed faith, with a restored faith. And they go from had-hoped disciples, from downcast disciples, from doubting uh, disciples, to possessing a great faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but now based upon the surest thing in the world, and that is the prophetic Scriptures, the Scriptures, the Word of God itself. You notice as well in verse 32 that Jesus' teaching of the Scriptures left them with a warm heart. And that is the, the warm witness of the Scriptures to the fact that their faith and our faith in Jesus as the Messiah as the Savior of the world is very well placed. In fact, it is perfectly placed. It is fascinating to me that Jesus on the day of His resurrection, which I assume was a fairly busy day, but on the day of His resurrection, He invested multiple hours on that Sunday engaged with these had-hoped disciples. And what it tells me is that His reason for doing so must have been very, very important. Not only to them, but to Him as well. And what was the lesson He wanted to drive home to them? That their faith in Him as Messiah and as Redeemer, as the Savior of the world, was not to be built uh, upon uh, what it had been built upon when they began their journey uh, and be, prior to His engagement with them. Emotions, uh, mood swings, the reports of others, the surmisings, the reasonings, the conjectures, uh, of, of other uh, people or even their own kind of mistaken expectations concerning the Messiah, but to be built upon the witness of the Scriptures, the Old Testament prophetic portrait of Messiah, completely and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus upon what the Apostle Peter put so perfectly upon the more sure word of prophecy. Let me read that passage to you in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He said as an apostle, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. 
For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him on the holy mount. And we also have the more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Peter says, listen, I'm about to die. That's the context of this, what he's writing here. And he says to them, I want you to know that my faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah is not based upon what I saw of him through three and a half years that I spent with him or what I uh, experienced with him, with uh, 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 James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, where I heard God the Father himself say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, hear ye him. He said, as wonderful as anything I've ever heard, as wonderful as anything I've ever experienced in my relationship with Jesus Christ, what is the rock-solid foundation for my faith in Him as the Messiah is the more sure word of prophecy that His life and His ministry was a, a, a perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Old Testament pro prophetic portrait of the Messiah who was to come. And so today, yes, our emotions run high. And that's exactly as it should be. It's absolutely wonderful as we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. But the witness of the Scriptures as a foundation for our faith anchors us year-round. The other 364 days of the year. And the witness of these Scriptures makes every day Resurrection Sunday for the Christian. It makes every day a celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And all of this brings uh, to mind, to me, the opening stanza of the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord. And that opening stanza reads like this, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, for you, uh, to you who for refuge to Jesus has, uh, have uh, fled? If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I just want to respectfully the privacy of your own heart, pose the question, and that is, what is your explanation for the witness of the Scriptures to Jesus as the promised Messiah and to Jesus as your Savior, intended to be your Savior? It isn't only that a Christian must have a reason for their belief. 
And that's always the weight that is put upon the Christian, always what it is examined, uh, what, is, uh, uh, what is the reason for their faith in Jesus Christ. But it is equally true of the person that hasn't, is not yet saved. You have to have a reason for your unbelief. And what is the reason for your unbelief in the face of this incredible portrait, prophetic portrait in the Old Testament given to you so that you might recognize your Savior when He came into human history and not be fooled by the surmisings of men or the opinions of men or your own ideas about life, but recognize Him as the one that you need for the forgiveness of sins, recognizing that He is the one that brings you into the very thing that you've been created for. And that is a personal relationship with God, and without which nothing in this world will satisfy. And, and uh, there'll always be that empty sense within our life if we live a life independent of the very reason uh, that we have been created. God loves you. He wants to save you. Look at all that He has done, not only in the sending of His Son, but to give you this portrait of His Son so you would recognize Him for who He is. And if you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, would like to do that today and repent of your sin, begin a personal relationship with God, there will be uh, pastors up in front immediately after the service and other men and women as well. We'd love to answer your questions and pray with you for this Resurrection Sunday to be the day that you are born again. If you need prayer for anything in your life this morning, speaking now to all of us, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for all of the rich realities and, and truths that you have provided uh, us in, in our lives as Christians. How blessed we are, Lord, when we look at the death and the burial and the resurrection of your Son and we see that what that means and what it does in a human life and and how it gives us meaning, it gives us purpose, a relationship with you, fellowship with you, and, and it explodes in all directions and overwhelms every need of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We are so thankful. And we thank you, Lord, that you have taken all of these truths, all of these realities, and all of these blessings, and that you have founded them on the surest thing, in all of the world and all of the universe. And that is your word, your promises. Thank you, Lord, for not only blessing us the way that you do, but for making them unwaveringly true. And that is our experience, Lord, and we give you praise for it this morning. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.